The story of Jonah is, of course, one of those Bible stories that is widely known. It's one of those stories that we uh, share with our children, that we teach in our Sunday schools. But more often than not, we, uh, we fail to miss the central character of this story. For this, this book, this story that's contained within the pages of this prophecy, this, this book is not primarily concerned about uh, the ship or the sailors or the storm or the great fish or even Jonah and the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is all about God. Christopher Wright, in his excellent book entitled The Mission of God, put it this way. For all the fascination of the character and adventures of Jonah, the real missional challenge of the book undoubtedly and intentionally lies in its portrayal of God. And this morning, I just want to break into the story in that third chapter, which was just read to us in our hearing. Jonah has been called to go to Nineveh. He rebels. He tries to run from God. There is that great storm. He finds himself in the belly of a great fish for three days, and then he is vomited out in dry land. And so we read chapter 3 of Jonah and verse 1. Then, after all that occurred, after those events, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in bread. What can we learn about God from this portion? And what is there here for us this morning by way of uh, encouragement, comfort, and challenge? Well, my outline is very, very simple this morning, and it is this. God holds no grudges. God makes no deals. And God has no blind spots. Three simple little thoughts to follow. God holds no grudges. Verse 1 of that third chapter, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Notice, not a word is spoken by God to Jonah about his past conduct. There is no word here of divine rebuke. There's no reminder here of his past failings. There is no word here uh, of, of blame being either announced or attached. These words uh, bring to us and face us and display to us the great grace that God extends to his prophet Jonah. That despite his past actions, despite his past failures, despite his past feelings towards God, 
he wasn't written off by God. He wasn't paid off. He wasn't discharged. He wasn't put back on the shelf. In no ways. God forgives and forgets and never holds his past failure against him again. And the proof of that is not simply in the silence of Scripture, but in the restoration to his calling and commission that you get in this second verse. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Here is this prophet who had run away from God. Here is this Jonah given another chance. He's given a second chance. As was Abraham when he stopped short of entering the promised land there in Genesis 13. As was Moses after he murdered that Egyptian and had to flee. As was Peter following his denial of our Lord. How wonderful it is to know that when we come here this morning to worship, we come here with that realization that our past failures are not final. That the God we have come to worship this morning does not hold grudges, but rather he extends his grace that God keeps no record of wrongs of his people. For is that not a feature of our Father's love? You see, when you read that love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what are you reading? You're reading about the love of God. You're reading about the elements that make up the love of God that unveils the various attributes of God's love. And included in that chapter, the fifth verse says this, that love, God's love, is not resentful. The NIV puts it this way, it keeps no record of wrongs. For you see, God's love never harms us. That is, God and his love is never vindictive. God doesn't act the way we act. Because what do we do? We store up in our memories all the, the bad and the sad and the mad things people have done to us or said to us or spoken to other people about us. We record them in our mind, and we do so with one reason. We remember those things that have been done or said to us with the very reason that one day an opportunity will come when we can retaliate, when we can get our own back, when we can balance the balance sheet. We remember the things said about us or done to us with this intention that one day we will get even, that one day will be payback day. Some of you know from my last time here, we do a little stuff in Cambodia. The Cambodians have a particular mentality 
of revenge. It's known by the word kum. And it acts like this. Suppose as I was if I leaving, when I leave the service this morning on the way out, you buttonhole me and you say, I totally disagree with what you said this morning, Brian. It was a lot of rubbish. And you push me a bit and you push me out the door. And I walk out and I think, all right, I've got your number. I've got your name. Cum retaliates this way. You pushed me. You shoved me. You put me out the door. All right. Five years later, maybe ten years later, I will burn your house down. Cum is a long-standing grudge leading to revenge which is far more damaging than the original injury. You pretend that everything is well, but you're just waiting for that occasion. But God, in his loving kindness and tender mercies, holds no such intentions. He holds no such record. He entertains no such thoughts. The Bible declares of his people, I will remember their sins no more. God refuses to call back to his memory those things which we have done. God does not keep a record of our failures. Rather, his love always hopes. For the seventh verse of that 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians says, God's love endures all things. That is, God's love never gives up. Jonah may try and run away, but the hound of heaven was at his heels. Jonah may run in the opposite direction, but when he gets there, God is waiting for him there in a storm. Because the fact simply is this, you can't hide from God's love. And the merciful fact is this. As far as God's love is concerned, there are no hopeless cases, none beyond the reach of his sovereign and searching and saving grace. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And what grace is that? And what grace for you and what grace for me? That God holds no grudges. He does not keep on reminding us of our frequent faults and failings. He is the God who pursues and persists with his pity towards his people. God holds no grudges. He is not angry with his people. You know, I sometimes think that believers have this idea that, that God is like an old man sitting in heaven on this big throne with a big stick, and he's just waiting for you to fall so that he can give you a good whack. He's just waiting for us there. He's just waiting for us there. But listen, friend, God is not angry with us, his people. All his anger was poured out at his son at Calvary. He holds no grudges. He loves us, and that love does not harm. 
But then the second thing I draw your attention to here is that God makes no deals. Talian Chavinjan, in his work on Jonah, entitled Surprised by Grace, puts it this way. God doesn't lighten the load, and he's referring here to the second verse of this third chapter, by the way. God doesn't lighten the load for Jonah the second time around. He doesn't say to Jonah, okay, I realize I gave you a rather tall order the first time, and, and it was a bit out of your reach. So let me make life a little bit easier for you. Let's throw in some adjustments so that your success is guaranteed. No, God does not act that way. God doesn't budge. He doesn't change. He doesn't renegotiate the terms of the call because our God is compassionate and caring, but he is also consistent. He makes no deals. He never bows to compromise. And this, this feature is made apparent to us in, in a rather subtle way here. Come back with me to the first chapter and verse 2. Here we have the terms of the initial commission to the prophet. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. And notice the word very carefully. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Now come back to chapter 3 and verse 2. Notice these words. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What's the difference? What's the difference? In chapter 1... There is an emphasis on the motive for the commission. For their evil has come before me. In chapter 3, the emphasis is not on the motive, but the message. He is to go and proclaim the message that I tell you. The cause of the mission is not altered, but the emphasis has now shifted to the content of the message and its divine source. In other words, the Lord does not give Jonah a free hand to say what he wants to say. He does not have a free hand to, to try and craft or construct what he would like to say to the Ninevites. Because, you see, God knew that Jonah didn't like the message that had been given to him. But God makes no deals. Jonah must proclaim the message he was given, for Jonah is a prophet, and a prophet was simply God's mouthpiece. Jonah is under orders to declare with full voice, thus saith the Lord. There is to be no change in content. There is no change in the commission. There is to be no compromise. God will not make a deal with Jonah to make it easier for him. 
For my friends, despite the common belief that announces and assures that, well, as long as your motives are pure, everything is okay, God's Word always emphasizes the correctness of the message over against the correctness of the motive. I wonder if you've ever noticed the difference between what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1. It's fascinating. Galatians chapter 1, dealing with the false teachers who have come and into the churches here at Galatia, and they've come with their false teaching. Now, I'm sure you've had a knock on your door sometime, and you've opened the door, and you've seen two young men standing there, usually with white shirts, ties, very well presented, and they have a badge on, elder such and such, and you look at it, and it says, I am elder such and such from the false teaching church of so-and-so. No. They're from Church of the Latter-day Saints or maybe the, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't think they're false teachers. They don't have a mark on their forehead that says, beware, what we're teaching will send you to hell. No, they think they're doing right. They think their motives are pure. They think they've come with the truth and they're going to help you in this life and maybe that which is to come. And so these false teachers come to Galatia and they thought they were doing the right thing. And what does Paul say? He says their message is wrong. Let them be accursed. Let them be accursed. They had a right motive, but they didn't have the right message. What do you get in Philippians? Paul's in prison. And people, some people, some preachers decided to get some benefit from this. So uh, they, they started to preach, and they did so in order to make things a little bit more difficult for Paul. Listen to his words. Philippians 1.15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Not very good motives. Envy, rivalry. They're preaching, trying to make it more difficult for Paul in prison. But Paul says, I don't care what their motives are. They are preaching Christ, and therein I rejoice. The difference was their motives were suspect, but their message was the true message of the gospel of Christ, and therefore Paul rejoices. And God's call to Jonah remains unchanged as it is to us. God's demands remain unchanged. His commands are non-negotiable. His commission is irrevocable. His message must not be altered, tampered with, watered down, comp uh, uh, compromised in any way. It is, thus saith the Lord. God holds no grudges, but he won't make any deals. He will never, never compromise his message. You need to go, Jonah, and you need to call out against it the message that I will tell you. And so you move into verse 3. God has no blind spots. 
God has no blind spots. What do I mean? John's Gospel, the second chapter, finishes with some interesting words of the Savior and some interesting actions of the Savior. John chapter 2, and I'm going to verse 23 of that chapter. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is John telling us here? Though many trusted in Jesus, Jesus would not trust himself to them. Why not? Because he knew what was in them, that they were fickle, foolish, faulty, deceitful, manipulative, people with unbelief in their hearts, people with stubborn wills, people with depraved minds, people just like us. God has no blind spots. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. He lacks no discernment. So what has that got to do with Jonah? Well, God calls him a second time. He is recommissioned, and Jonah obeys. He goes where God wants him to go. He says what God wants him to say. And so writers and commentators and preachers declare that because Jonah repented of that previous rebellion and now totally surrendered to God's will, God can now use him to bring about a mighty revival. Jonah has now become the kind of man that God can use. And so, and you've probably heard sermons on this and probably read books on this, we are challenged and exhorted and encouraged to make sure that we are surrendering all to God so that God can use us. If you hang around me long enough, you'll learn that I'm a bit of a heretic. I just don't get that, folks. Let me tell you my problem with that kind of reasoning and that kind of logic and that kind of preaching. The reasoning can be simplified this way. Our fruitfulness depends upon our faithfulness. Jonah is now fully surrendered to the Lord so God can now take him and use him to bring about a great revival. Here's my problem. Number one. Undoubtedly, Jonah turns to God in prayer. It's recorded in chapter 2. But in that prayer, there is no evidence of Jonah seeking forgiveness, only deliverance. There's only one thing in his mind. He wants to get out of the belly of the fish. There is no indication of contrition of sin. There is no indication of repentance of sin. Secondly, Jonah's rebellious heart has not changed. Oh, there is outward conformity, but there is no inward compassion. 
For while chapter 3 goes on to tell us about the wonderful revival that swept through Nineveh, when you come into chapter 4, the story returns to Jonah, and there we find him still full of anger and rage and resentment about God. My version says, the English Standard Version, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And God knew it, because God has no blind spots and he saw the state and sin of the prophet. And so he asks the question, verse 4 of chapter 4. The Lord says, do you be well to be angry? Do you be well to be angry? So what does it all mean to us? What can we glean for us and take away with this this morning? Can I put to you that personally speaking there is here to me a wonderful word of comfort, a wonderful word of comfort, and that is that Jonah was mightily used of God because, number one, he delivered the message God had given to him. It was not crafted by him. It was not created by him. It was not constructed by him. He simply conveyed it. It was God's message which came by God's Spirit to accomplish God's will simply through the channel of this man, Jonah. God blessed the message because it was his message. And secondly, it was God by his Spirit who brought about the repentance within the Ninevites who imparted faith to them, who created spiritual life in them, because this is what God always does in order to make a people for himself. That the elements that we speak of, whether it be faith, repentance, life, whatever, they come to us as gifts of God that were procured for us by Christ at Calvary. It was the Spirit of God who was at work through the message, not the cleverness or the ability of a man called Jonah. And thirdly, it was God sovereignly working according to his promise to Abraham. His promise and purpose to bring the gospel to the nations. So that the nations, as Paul puts it in Romans 15, would glorify God for his mercy. And so here is my comfort, beloved. That here is this prophet, here is this man, Jonah, who didn't have it all together, who wasn't some super spiritual saint, who wasn't some spiritual giant, but rather actually harbored anger in his heart towards God. And yet God in his grace and for his glory used that man. And I say I find a word of comfort there because I know something of my own heart. As I'm sure you know something of yours. And even to know that God knows us more than we know ourselves and yet would be pleased to use us is simply a point of adoration and of praise. So that 
fruitfulness in service is due entirely to God's faithfulness to himself. God's fruitfulness in service is due to God's faithfulness to himself. We are at best unprofitable servants. And yet in saying that, let me hasten to add that there is here a word of challenge. For you see, while God used Jonah, Jonah is not exhibited as a model we should follow any more than pre-Pentecost Peter is held up to us as an example of allegiance to Christ. In Jonah, we see a prophet whose passion was not in accordance with his master's mission and whose obedience was one of duty and not delight. Because what is the master's mission? To bring the knowledge of God to the Gentiles so that they will glorify him for his mercy. And what constitutes acceptable, pleasing obedience? Well, some of you have children. Some of you have grandchildren. What kind of obedience do you expect from the little ones? What is obedience? I once heard it put this way, and I've never forgotten it. Obedience is doing what you're told. We all agree? Amen. Obedience is doing what you're told. Dinner's ready. Two minutes later, no movement, no sound, no activity. Five minutes later, dinner's ready. What are you expecting? Obedience is doing what you're told when you're told. Obedience to Jesus offered to to God. I delight to do your will. The right heart attitude. For Jonah, there was external compliance but inward contempt. What's the challenge? Is the grace of God meeting with a response in our lives? Oh, so many of us here, I'm sure in this room, we we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is, we know the joy of God's saving grace in our lives. But is there something in our lives that is stultifying God's serving grace. There's people meeting here knowing how they love one another. And we do so not in order that we may be admired, but to please him who loves us so thoroughly and who knows us intimately and who sings frail vessels. He uses Jonah kinds of people to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. For it's from him and through him and to him be all the glory forever and ever. And that we would obey you doing what we're told, when we're told, with a smile. Oh, work in us that which is good and pleasing in your sight, we pray of you, and get glory to your name through us, we ask of you. In Jesus' name.